You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. All right, well, good morning. You may have a seat. So welcome to those joining us online. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, if you want to just let us know that, or if you're a regular tender, just let us know you're joining online on the app. Well, it is, uh, it's good to come back together again. Uh, we had a one-week break, break uh, for uh, Pastor Paul being here last week, and now we're back into Genesis. And um, just to kind of reset things as we, as we get ready to study the book, just a reminder, Genesis 4 yeah, it reminds us that um, uh, the sin that was in the garden didn't stay in the garden. Um, uh, we see the first murder uh, right off the bat, and, and just, then there's this continual um, pathway of sin in Genesis 4. But Genesis 5 reminds us that God is not, uh, not going to fail us, that, th- that there is a godly line being raised up, the line of Seth. And um, as we go through there, we see uh, God's plan for salvation, even in Genesis 5. So uh, I, I, remember, I remember when I first opened up Genesis 5, I was like, okay, this is going to be a rough week. But uh, by the time you get done that genealogy, you see just God's faithfulness uh, through that. And as we get to the end of Genesis 5, we see this guy by the name of Lamech who is prophesying about his son Noah, that through Noah we'll see a relief a comfort from the pain and the curse that we see. And that leads us into this week, Genesis chapter 6. So we think about um, sin in this world. This, this text is uh, it's a heavy text. I was just sharing in the prayer time this morning. It's, um, we, we ought to feel the weight of our depravity as we look at this text this week. Um, This was not a special group of people, a special group of sinners. This was just a group of sinners left to themselves. And um, what we see is sexual deviance. What we see is celebrating of violence. And I've just been thinking about our country of Canada. And, you know, if you took somebody from the 1940s, and they could have been, you know, super pagan person, and you put them in our society today, I think they would be a little shocked by what they could see. Like, there's been this, like, listen, there was sin going on in the 1940s. There, there, was, there were people who were taking God's gift of sex and using it in the wrong way. But what we're seeing is just a furtherance and furtherance of of. of of abandonment to sinful flesh, a not just hiding it. And, you know, even when I was in high school, we, you know, somebody moved in with someone, they called it shacking up. Like there was still negative connotations to that. Today, everybody looks like, it looks at you like you're super weird. If you don't move in together before you get married, like how, how will your marriage work? Like how is that gonna, like they, they, that, that's how far we've went uh, just with that. And then of course we see all the other twistings going on with sex. When it comes to violence in our country, 
You know, we're, we're really big on getting rid of guns, but we're really big on killing babies. Uh, I mean, in the United States, they started changing some rules in the states down there, and guess who was right front and center saying, hey, hey, listen, if you can't get an abortion in your state, come to Canada. We'll make sure that you're, you can get the abortion that you want. I read a really disturbing stat, uh, well, actually heard a really disturbing stat this last week uh, when I was, I was at Miller Bible College just last week teaching a class there. And one of the chapels, um, they uh, were talking about the fact, you know, medical assistance in dying, uh, Canada. Uh, Canada has the same rules as California. And California has about the same population as we do. In 2021, in California, there were anywhere between 450 and 500 people uh, killed in California through medical assistance and dying. In Canada, in the same time, there were over 10,000 people killed. Like, we are not going anywhere good fast in our country. And, and I feel like as we read this text this morning, uh, it's, it can get worse. And, and we need to cry out for mercy to our Lord on behalf of our country. We need to ask that the Lord would help us to stay strong in these days where there is a, an increasing celebration of the satanic, of the anti-God, and an increasing persecution against the church. The verses that we're going to be talking about this morning, we see evil at its height. And I think about where we live in the trajectory of salvation right now. We read in Luke 17, 26, 27, just as it was in the days of Noah, and this is talking about before Christ will return, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And I'm just talking about a Canadian perspective here this morning. But if Canada's perspective is going to be the perspective of the rest of the world, then I believe that the Lord's return is coming soon and we need to be ready. My prayer would be for every one of you here this morning that you will be found ready. You'll be found rejoicing when he returns and you will not be of those who would be destroyed. And so this is an important text. We need God's help in understanding it. There's a lot of difficult things to try to work through. So let's go to him in prayer and then we'll get into it. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, you are so faithful. You are so good. Lord, as I as we're going to see this, this the, the depravity of man, as we see their rebellion against you, their hatefulness of you. God, I, I thank you that you're a God of mercy. God, I thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. And God, as we study these things this morning, I pray that we would have your heart, that we'd have your mind. God, we would be better worshipers as a result of our time here this morning, and that, Lord, we would be warned that the things that we see in this text are repeating themselves again, and that means judgment is coming, and that, Lord, we would be ready for that time. It will come unexpectedly, or you could come today. Lord, help us to be ready. Lord, lead us now by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, everybody needs a Bible? If you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and slip up your hand, and ushers will be happy to get you a copy. And as you get that Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Now, as I mentioned, um, there's some difficult things in this text, okay? We're not necessarily all going to agree, and we don't need to agree, okay? We don't need to agree on things like who are the sons of God, who are the Nephilim. Um, what we need to agree on is that mankind is super wicked. That's, that's, that's what you, if we miss that point, then we miss what sons of God and Nephilim were. And uh, so we're going to, I'm going to do my best <laughs> to navigate you through this. And I'm going to tell you my conclusions, but if you have different conclusions, we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? So, so, but what we need to see is the sinfulness of man and the mercy of God. That's what we're going to need to see as we get into the text this morning. Let me read for us. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they were born children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had man, made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Three observations concerning a world about to be judged. Three observations concerning a world about to be judged. First, we see the depths of depravity. The depths of depravity. What we're seeing described here, though it may be difficult to understand some of these things, is just how wicked mankind had gotten. This this piece of scripture, we're going from this genealogy to how do we get to the point where there's a flood? This is the explanation of how we got to the point where the Lord decided that the earth needed to be destroyed, that mankind needed to be destroyed. How did we get there? Verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Uh, just, a, just a side note here, this, this idea of the multiplying on the face of the land, uh, the, the, there's anywhere, I've seen all kinds of estimates. <laughs> I've seen some people think maybe there's 750 million people on the earth by this time. Some think 4 billion. If you're an answers in Genesis kind of person, they say 4 billion. I've heard 7 billion. I've even seen some, some say it could be even higher than that. When you think about how many babies they could have had and the length of time they were living on this earth. But, but probably likely more than you and I first think when we read this text. You know, we're thinking like, you know, 100,000, maybe a million people on the earth by this time. But no, we're talking a great amount of people. And as they increase... In population, sadly, we see an increase in wickedness. Verse 2, the sons of God saw 
that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Well, here the problems begin, all right? Who are the sons of God, and who are the daughters of man? I'm going to focus on two theories, um, and there's a third I'll just quickly mention. But the first is that the sons of God come from the line of Seth, right? We've had, if you look at chapter 4, we've seen the line of Cain. Chapter 5, we see the line of Seth. So it is reasoned, the sons of God, those who are of God, that's the line of Seth. And the daughters of man, well, that's the line of Cain, there's many uh, godly men who have thought this. Augustine thought this was the case. Uh, the reformers, guys like Luther and Calvin, they believed that this was the case. And their argument here is that, that um, there, there's a turning to wickedness that's happening in this. The, the, the people, the sons of God, who should know better that they ought to marry godly women are not doing that. They are turning away and they are, once again, repeating the sin of Genesis 3. They're going after the forbidden fruit. And I remember, you know, I did 10 years of youth ministry. We did this illustration many times. What's easier to do, to pull someone up or pull someone down? So you get a kid to stand on a chair, right? And they're like, okay, so if you're dating an unbeliever, what's going to happen to you, right? You're going to get pulled down. That's how it works. And so, so the line of reasoning here is, is that as this is happening, as those who should know better are marrying those who are wicked, there is an increase in evil in the world. There's less and less godly families because what's happening is the line of Seth is being minimized more and more so as they go after these women. Just a note, and this will come up again, but they took as their wives any they chose. There's marriage going on here. This isn't some kind of um, like rape or sexual molestation here, uh, anything going on there. They're, they're getting married, and it seems that the wives are happy that they're being married to who they're marrying. That's, that's the indication as you look at the, the Hebrew words here. Um, this is just a, they're welcoming these marriages, the women who are being married. So that's one example of what is being thought here. Okay, it was pretty clear. It's pretty, it's pretty neat and tidy, uh, that one. I, I, you know, it's, I see it being very attractive. And, and before I preached Genesis 4 and 5, I thought it was ridiculous. But after re- reading Genesis 4 and 5, I was like, oh, yeah, I could see how they got there. But I didn't land there, okay? There's another theory out there that the sons of God are tyrant kings, of the mythical past, right? The, who accomplished many mighty feats. And, and I'm not going to really spend any time on there because I think it's a huge leap to think sons of God, mighty men. There's, there's just no grammar there that works for this. So the last view and the one that I believe is the correct interpretation are that the sons of God are fallen angels, demons. Which in materialistic Canada... You might be looking at me like, really, Pastor? How did you get to that one? Well, let me tell you how I got there. First, sons of God are not, this term is not used very many times in the Old Testament. Uh, let me just give you some instances where it's used. Job 1.6, 9 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The sons of God are angels, right? They're coming before God to, to represent. Uh, there's this is something. It's like, don't you love the Bible? You know, it's just like, yeah, by the way, this is happening. Like, what? Why? Like, how? Why? You know, does this happen every day? We're not told, okay? There's a lot that we're not being told. Even in this text, there's a lot that we're not being told. God's just telling us what we need to hear. Okay, and, and so sons of God, in this case, clearly angels, Job 2.1, basically saying exactly the same thing. Then Job 38, later on, verses 6 and 7, God talking about the time of creation, he says this, on what were its bases sunk and, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Sons of God again, angels. Daniel 3.25, Daniel in the line, or uh, sorry, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're in the fire, but there's a fourth person there. Who is it? He answered, but I see four, Daniel 3.25, but he answered and I said, but I see the four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Every other instance in the Old Testament when sons of God are used, are angels. So that, that's pretty convincing. You, maybe you're still not convinced. Well, the New Testament has commentary on this time. So let us turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. You can flip over there. We're going to come back, obviously, to Genesis 6. But for now, turn to 1 Peter 3, verse 18. And we're going to see that there's additional evidence that this could be the sons of God were demons. Uh, just to set the setting, we read verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. In which, points us back, in which here would refer to his resurrected body based on our understanding of what it meant that Jesus made, was made alive from the previous verse. In his resurrected body, at some point, Jesus went where? It says that he went to some kind, of, some kind of prison where spirits were. So what does it mean that he proclaimed one, and then who are the spirits, and where is the prison? Let's begin with who the spirits are in this passage. We're given little inf more information about them in verse 20. Verse 20, if you look at it, they are in prison because they formerly did not obey. So they are in prison due to disobedience to God. Peter gives us a further clue. They are the ones who did their disobeying specifically in the days of Noah prior to the flood when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Right? So these spirits, they're there in this prison because of what they did in the days of Noah. Again, thinking about just Satan's attempt to destroy God's plans, right? If you think of, again about Genesis 3.15, God said, I'm going to send someone who will stomp the head of Satan. He will destroy the works of Satan. So Satan's job from then on was to try to destroy that plan. And he was trying to get as many people as he could to turn away from God. And it seems, as we, get, as we kind of trace this line here, 
that people willingly and wanted, and want, wanted to side with Satan. Women wanted to be with these either demon-possessed men or demons who had taken on flesh. And I'll talk more about that in just a moment. So demons were possessing men so they might have relations with women. This is what MacArthur has to say about this. Fallen angels acted perversely, overstepping the boundaries of their realm. They defied God by leaving their spirit world to enter the human realm. This is the first record of demon possession, demons indwelling people. Those wicked spirits were drawn to females whom they saw as beautiful in some perverse way. And so these demons, they desire the women, uh, the, fle- the, uh, the God, sorry, um, fleshly women, women, right, that we know of, they entered men to do so. Willingly, the men were entered, these demons entered these men, and then these women wanted to be with them. Let's look at another verse just a little bit later. 2 Peter 2, if you want to flip over there, 2 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. So again, think about the context of what we just read. The scriptures were telling us that those spirits, those angels, were in prison for what they had done. 2 Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Okay, so we see, again, the connection here. Is going back to the days of Noah. These spirits, these angels, are being, they are put into hell. They're committed to chains of gloomy darkness and kept there until the final judgment. Why, when did this happen? Again, he's pointing back to Noah. Last scripture in the New Testament, Jude chapter 6. Well, Jude 6, you know what I'm saying. Jude 6, <laughs> verses 6 and 7. Again, angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal, eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You see how there seems to be a lot of evidence that these sons of God were angels, that they were demons who decided to leave their proper position and come on the earth and have sex with these women, marry these women. It's not just a, um, I think that's important to see because we're seeing that as we're going to continue to read here, the culpability is with mankind. They're welcoming this. They're embracing the demonic. A couple other things that bring us to this conclusion. The word here for spirits in prison, it's only ever used of angels and never of humanity. Second, we see in Revelation 20 that Satan will be imprisoned for a thousand years in the abyss. The language there is similar to this, this prison. Place of this prison may be the abyss where Satan will be one day bound. 
and where Legion asked, remember Legion, asked Jesus not to send them when Jesus was about to cast them out of the, out, out of the man in the Gospel of Luke. Remember that? Please don't cast us there. Cast us into these pigs instead. So based on this understanding, then the Greek word, when Jesus is saying, proclaim, caruso, he, it is, he's proclaiming victory over those demons. Okay, what were the demons trying to do? Well, they love women, and they're having relations with them, but at the same time, likely what's going on here is they're promising immortality. You won't have to die. You can become gods. This is, you just embrace us the demonic. God is not for you. He's against you. The same lies that are being told in the garden in Genesis 3 are still being told now. And listen, I mean, every messed up religion in the world has this kind of stuff in there, isn't it? You can avoid death. Don't listen to God and his rules. He says that if you don't do it his way, you'll go to hell. That's not true. Follow our religion and you'll get into heaven. It's the same lies over and over and over again. And, and what's so twisted is often is there, there is this sexual part in it. You think about the land that Israel was about to go into. These guys who are really receiving this word, they're about to go into the promised land. What are they being warned about? about these cults that were there and just like this most grotesque stuff going on, the Asherah poles and, and how you would, if you would give yourselves over sexually, you would have power and you would gain, you gain, gain blessing through these satanic things. Over and over again, the demons had tried to thwart God's plans. And so what's sweet about, as you get to the New Testament, when you hear about Jesus going there, he says, you lost. I have won. He proclaims the victory to these demons that we're talking about here back in chapter 6. Now, one last thing, and you can flip back to chapter 6 while I talk about this part of Genesis 6. Um, demon possession, or did these demons take on flesh? I mean, both are really horrific, right? I mean, we don't have to probably spend too much time thinking about this, but Gentry makes a good point that, that it likely could have been that they actually took on flesh. And what we're going to get into is we're going to continue to study the book of Genesis. We see angels coming onto this earth and what? They eat and they drink. You get to Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels that are there, the men, the wicked men outside said what? Bring these men out that we might have relations with them. And so it doesn't seem to be a far stretch to say, not just necessarily demon-possessed people, but demons themselves taking on flesh. And listen, again, women willingly and wanting to be with them. Thinking that somehow it will go well with them, that this is a good thing. So the lies of Satan continue. Follow his ways and everything will be better. Do not listen to God. Do you want to avoid death? Then join forces with me and you will certainly not die. Join forces with me and we will surely defeat God. Break free from his ways and you will become God's. Hugh says this, given the fact that God will shorten life, as we will see in the next verse, it also appears that these marriages were an attempt to grasp some, something of divinity and to achieve immortality. 
So, so a society that is fully on embrace the demonic. That could never happen in Canada, right? I mean, it's just Hollywood, but did anybody watch the Grammys? Hopefully not. But have you seen any of the clips from the Grammys? Somebody dressed up like the devil and like, yes, it's great. It's a great party. Let's sing a song to that. Like our, our society is slipping quickly towards this. So do this and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna become gods. You're going to lengthen life. And God says what? The Lord said, my, sh- my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Okay, finally an easy verse to, to know, right? Well, No. What is he talking about here? Does he mean that mankind will only live up to 120 years now? That the, that will be his lifespan? That, that he'll only live that long? Well, we see that after the flood, Abraham and, and, and his family closest to him, they made up like to 175 and 180. But then after that, it's, it's, it's like the max is like Aaron we see is like 120. And so it could be reason, yeah, it seems like that, that might be the case. He's saying, listen, you guys who, who thought you were going to be able to lengthen life by doing this, instead of me allowing you to live 800 years, 900 years, the max you're going to live is 120 years. So that is one interpretation. The other interpretation is that he's saying you, the clock has started. 120 years until the flood comes. And then my spirit will not be with you anymore. You will die. Spirit, life, breath, the same word. God's life will no longer be in them. They will be destroyed. I lean towards the latter, but if you think the former, I can see how you got there pretty easy too, right? But it seems like there's a clock. We, we see, again, in those New Testament passages, there's a time to build the boat, all right? And I think the time, as we're going to get into it next week, I think it's 120 years to build the boat. And, and all the while, he's preaching this message of righteousness. And guess what? Not one single person repents. No one. Talking on this text, Hugh says this, having sought immortality through his liaisons, man was sentenced to live a maximum of 120 years. He, he believes that's the, the right interpretation. As I said, I, I believe that it's probably the countdown here. So, okay, but let's not lose the big picture here, okay? Mankind, super sinful. They're either going to have their life shortened, which actually does happen for sure, 120, and there's a time coming where judgment's coming. So either way, we're seeing that they're going to be judged for their immorality, what they have done. Matthew says this, the attempt by man to become more than he is results in him becoming less. Now we get to verse (laughs) 4. The Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they were born children children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. It seems like... um, with COVID, the, the knowledge of Nephilim and searches on 
Google went up a hundredfold, okay? Uh, there's all kinds of crazy stuff on the internet in regards to this, okay? Interesting, a lot because of the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch, it was written uh, third, third, second century B.C. Has some stuff in there that was historical. Some believed it was actually from God, this book, but there's a whole lot in there that we should see that it's not, it's contrary to this book, which would show us it's not scripture. But from that, then there's, there's this thinking that, okay, the Nephilim are like these demigods, right? Like Zeus is real, right? Like that's what happened as a result of these relationships between the sons of God and, and women, that, that, that these, these actually were these gods out there. And there's all kinds of stories told about the flood and what was going on back then. And, and, and there's this, this, these, these stories of all kinds of different gods or uh, semi-gods that were partial man, partial God. I think if we're reading this correctly, this is actually a rebuke to that notion. Now, Peter Gentry um, was super helpful as far as me helping, help, helping me, someone like me to understand this. You'll note that it's, there's, there's this time frame going on. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, okay? And also afterward, and by the way, Nephilim are also mentioned in the book of Numbers. I think if we're, we're understanding this correctly, we're being told, listen, those Nephilim, the, the stories of them being gods, not true. They were here before this intermarriage thing was going on between the sons of God and those who were of women, or the, the, and women, okay? That, that it was not, the Nephilim didn't come from there. In addition, we see, so, sorry, Gentry went through the entire, so, the, sorry, <laughs> Trying to keep this straight. In the Hebrew scriptures, this phraseology, in those days and also afterward, Gentry went through every instance of them in the Old Testament. And, and so what he said, his conclusion then, is that the Nephilim were there before and after the marriages between the sons of God and the daughters of men. In addition, these were the mighty men who were of old. The men of renown is acting as a footnote. Who were they? They were the men of renown. The, they, again, if we think about numbers, they're the giants. They're the people who are mighty warriors. They're, they're known for their violence. They, they, they were the, their military um, prowess that they had, how they could kill just about anyone they wanted. And so I think this seems to be the right interpretation. They're not some kind of gods. They're not, you know, they don't live in Antarctica right now and are ruling the world, okay? That, that's, that's a popular thing that's out there. Why? Based on the book of Enoch, they're still, see, they're still here. In numbers, we still, they're still here and they're hidden. We can't see them. No, these are just mighty men, warriors, that they, 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 the society of that time are, 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 are celebrating them. Matthew says here, ancient memory rightly reflected the distant past when fierce tyrants ruled the day, but the author of Genesis, by relating the Nephilim to the wickedness of the times and their ensuing judgment, showed that they were altogether mortal, not at all superhuman, and subject to the judgment of God. So what is being highlighted here through 
uh, what is being highlighted here is the kind of people that were being held in high regard in this society. It was that those who were violent, they were known for their size and their military prowess. Again, Matthews, he says this, these are the warrior class, men of ignoble reputation whose violent exploits are remembered and whose names strike fear in the hearts of their hearers. They are identified as men of renown, not divine or semi-divine figures. Despite their notorious achievements, they are no more than men subject to the same judgment as any. And as you look at, I think, the final clincher, if you, keep, if you read verse 1, 2, 3, 4, it's men, men, men. There, there is, there's no more talk about, you know, some kind of half God, half man thing here. Okay? So I think man is going to be judged. Verse 5, what, what do we see here? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, okay, these demons, where are they? They're in a special prison now. That's where they went, and then mankind was judged. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is what we need to have as your conclusion, regardless of what you think from verses 1 to 4. You must arrive at this conclusion. What do we see as a result of the Nephilim, and we see the result of the sons of God marrying the, the, the daughters of men, we see that they are wicked. Note, note just the words that are used here. The wickedness, what kind of wickedness we got going on here? Small? That was great on the earth. Now listen, every, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention, only evil, continually. They wake up in the morning and they're thinking about evil, wicked things. And they do so continually all through the day. This was the society that God saw. How far mankind has fallen from the Garden of Eden. The Lord sees just how great the wickedness of man is on the earth the Lord who had observed his original creation. If you've been here since September, you know, right? The original creation. He looked at the earth and he said, Behold, it was very good. And now it is very bad. Very bad. A complete absence of good. A continual drive to do evil. The words used here describe the wickedness of man, and this verse gives us a picture of how bad it was. Every, only, continually. There was not a time when wickedness was not on their hearts. Here we see the depths of depravity in a society that celebrates sexual perversion. Again, we think about that text in the New Testament saying it's, it's comparing it to the times of Lot. Sexual perversion, violence, and total rejection of God and his ways. Like things are bad in Canada, but they're not this bad yet. We're reminded here that things could get worse. So how does God respond? Three observations concerning a world about to be judged. We see the depths of depravity. Now we see the sadness of sin. It says in verse 6, 
And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Again, this is not an easy verse to understand. How do these things said about God match up with an all-knowing, all-powerful God? How can we say that the Lord regretted anything? He is perfect. I mean, 1 Samuel 15, 29, this is what Samuel said of God. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. God doesn't have regret, so how can it say here that he has regret, that he had made man on the earth? Well, first, it's good to note that the words that are being used here are the same as what we see in Genesis 5.29. That, that there's, there's hurt involved, there's pain involved, there's the longing for comfort. Ross says this, some of the words used in 6, 5 through 8 form a striking play on the words of Lamech in the last chapter, which in turn echo the curse in Genesis 3. We are told that God was sorry that he had made man because the sin of the race broke his heart. Lamech longed for relief from the work and painful labor under the curse. This helps us to understand the extent of pain in the world, the inevitable increase of suffering as a result of sin. Sin is painful, bringing pain to even God himself. Do you know that God's not a robot? Like those of us who are heavy on the sovereignty and power of God, we kind of just like, like zero emotions. God has, except for maybe anger. I'm pretty sure he has anger and wrath. But what we're being told here is that God is deeply grieved. He's in anguish over what he's seeing as a result of sin. God came in the flesh. Jesus, in his last week, he comes up to Jerusalem. We see this in Luke 19, verse 41. It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. God is grieved over sin. This is what this text is talking about. He is being impacted by the sin and rebellion that he sees. Sin brings pain. Sin brings so many evils and wickedness. And God sees this and he is weeping, he's grieving, he's in anguish over these things. Matthew says this, God is grieving because this sinful man is not the pristine mankind whom he had made to bear his image. The intensity of the pain is demonstrated by the use of the verb here, Elsewhere used in Genesis where it's described mourning over the loss of a family member due to death. But his, his is not regret over destroying humanity. Paradoxically, so foul has become mankind that it is necessary to step in to salvage mankind. I mean, this is what God is, is facing as he sees what's happening. 
If God does not step in now, it's over. It's over for mankind. This is, this is God's mercy and grace being shown here. I don't, we don't see that. We think, wow, I mean, did he really have to destroy them all? Like, I mean, why would he do that? Do, do we understand the, the, what sin does? How, how horrific sin is. And God is up there and he's seeing every vile wickedness happening day in and day out as people destroy one another on this earth. And, and he's saying, I can't do this anymore. And so he says in verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God knows that it is now time to act in, in accordance with what is just and right. In God, uh, God's omniscience and power, he knows that the only thing now to do is to bring judgment. There is no other way. Mankind has become completely demonized and incapable of repentance. We see that. He still gives a message of righteousness for 120 years, but they still do not repent. It says here that both mankind and animals will be destroyed. Hughes says this, The destruction of everything from man to animals had to do with man's given sovereignty over the earth. For the irrational creatures were created for him and therefore were involved in the fall. There would be no half measures in dealing with sin. If God does not step in here to deal with humanity, then they would be lost for all of eternity. For all of eternity. And there would never be any hope on this earth. The whole earth has been polluted by the wickedness of men. If God does not act here, then his promise is in jeopardy. And so God is sorrowful over what he sees. The sadness of sin is something everyone here has experienced. Do you know the sadness of sin? When you see the destruction and pain that comes as a result of sin, you're moved in the same way that Lamech was moved, and then the same way that God has moved here. I pray that all of you have been moved because of your own sin. Do you remember that day when you realized that you had sinned against a holy God? That you had been walking in hatred and rebellion against the one who made you? The one who is fully good? The one who is fully loving? And you finally seen him for who he really is as, a, as opposed to the distorted God that Satan makes him out to be? When you finally seen him in all his love, in all his goodness, and you realize that you had been walking in rebellion against him, shaking your fist at him, and you were broken. And said, God, please forgive me. I have sinned against you. As God's people, I pray that we're still broken over our sin. He is fully good. He is fully right in all that he does. Every command that he gives us is for our good. And yet we walk around like we should be God, that we know better. 
we still shake our fists at him and we ought to be broken over our sin. This is what repentance is. So I pray every one of you could say, I know that day. And if not, if you don't have a story, I pray that today will be that day that God would finally open your eyes to see that you are a sinner who has sinned against him and that you need a savior. Then there's the pain of being sinned against. Anyone here been sinned against? Has that ever happened to you? I see two hands. That's great. We all have been sinned against. We live in a sinful world. People lie against us. Gossip, hatred, lust, envy, jealousy, anger, and on and on the list goes. We have all been hurt by sin. As we think about our Heavenly Father's pain in this text, there are many parents here who can relate in the same way as they see their children walking in rebellion against God. There's nothing more painful. As I, as I talk to different pastors as I go from place to place and I hear about, you know, they, church can be hard. <laughs> Ministry can be hard. But when I hear that their child is not living for God, there's nothing more painful than that. You love them. You want what's best for them. And you know that everything that they're doing is only going to result in their pain, in their shame. And you long for them to turn and see, see that God is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life, that he has made a way that they might be reconciled to them. And then they can know life and know it abundantly. The sadness of sin, we've all experienced it. And so we are only relating to our Father when we see him being sad over sin. He's not emotionless and distant, but rather experiences emotion and is near. His emotions, though, do not change his promises, and he remains faithful to who he is, which leads us to our last observation. Three observations concerning a world to be judged. We see the depths of depravity, the sadness of sin, and then lastly, the magnitude of mercy. And we're just going to talk about this briefly because we're going to talk about it a lot more next week. But, but, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I love how Moses has written this because <laughs> he's like, it's over. It's over. Everything and everyone is going to be destroyed. And that's what it should be. But, God. Noah, he's a godly man. Why? Because of God's grace. Because of his mercy. He had opened his eyes to see that God is good. And he's living for him in the midst of a crazy, depraved world. And so, because he finds God's grace, because he finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, there is hope for humanity. The promise will continue. There is still one who will come and crush Satan. Which again reminds us of the text in the New Testament where it says, and he came and he died and he rose again and he went to those spirits in prison and proclaimed his victory. 
pray that everyone here knows the mercy and grace of God. Though you have sinned against the Lord God, that you know in his grace towards you, that he's opened his, your eyes to see his goodness towards you, to see that he has sent his son so that you might be forgiven and reconciled to him. We have all received God's mercy. We know that as Jesus hung on the cross, he took our sins upon him, and then God's wrath was poured out on him. That's how we've received mercy. We all deserve God's wrath, but instead it was placed on Christ. And so we rejoice in him this morning. God's sadness and pain over sin leads him, listen, to both judgment and salvation. We see it here in the text. God's judgment over sin for unrepentant sinners and God's salvation to Noah who had turned to him. And so it is today. We're in the last days. The clock started at the resurrection. And we don't know how much longer before Christ returns. But I pray that we'd hear the message that was for this time and it is for us today. Repent now. I don't know your heart here this morning. Only God knows your heart. You could fool a lot of people, but you can't fool him. And he knows your heart towards him. If it is reconciled to him or whether you're still walking in rebellion against him. But I pray that everyone today would repent before it's too late because he is coming again. The judgment will not be with a flood, but instead this time with fire as Christ comes with his angels to destroy all the wicked on this earth. It is coming and it is coming soon. I read this scripture to close. Matthew 24, 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Let me pray. Lord God, We're reading about things that happened thousands of years ago, and yet, Lord, it seems so relevant to where we live today. We, are, we see our society increasingly turning against you and everything that is right and embracing all that is wicked. And we know that, Lord, you will not put up with this forever. That there will be a time, just as it was in the days of Noah, that, Lord, there will be a time where you will say enough is enough. The last person will be saved, and then you will come, and you will bring judgment upon this earth. And, God, I'm praying for every single person here this morning. God, I'm praying that they have been reconciled to you. That, God, they would see your love towards them. That, God, they would repent of their wickedness and trust you. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about this next week, but as we see Noah standing alone against so many, just his family against so many, God, we, 
We pray that even though we may feel outnumbered in these days, that God, you are with us, that you will help us to stand strong on your word, even if persecution would come against us, even if there would be those who would kill us. God, we will stand strong for your namesake. For you are God, you alone are good, and we will worship you for all of our days. God, may that be the resolve of every single person here, God. God, thank you for your example. Thank you, Lord, that you were sad when you seen sin. God, I pray that that would be our heart, that we would be broken over our own sin, and that we would be broken by the sin that we see around us, that we would see the hurt that is causing our world, and that we would be quick to show compassion and proclaim the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, would you use us to save many from the wrath to come. It's your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.